Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope de Gamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Not That Kind of Dream Girl by Evan Burko. I owe her my life, to the extent I can even call it my own. That raven-haired flicker of smile and skirt who danced through the dim crowd of the Bowery Ballroom, pulling the concert's kaleidoscope lighting into orbit around her. I can't remember who was playing that night, or even who dragged me out of the office for the show, but I can still taste my first glimpse of her. It was a lukewarm Heineken, drawn to my lips as she passed, perfectly aligned so that she tiptoed across the brim of my cup. At first, she was just a blur weaving through the throng, a mirage that shifted along with the lights. One moment, she seemed to have slicked straight hair, a ruby gown hugging tight to her curves. A drunk staggered between us, and I realized I was mistaken. She was actually in leather with hair shorn to the scalp. But those apparitions must have been tricks of the shadows. She emerged from between a bickering couple looking completely different, dressed simply in a gingham shirt and a loose-flowing skirt. Gorgeous in that girl-next-door sort of way. She paused in the center of the thrumming mob, turned her head to the lights above, closed her eyes, and smiled. It looked as if she was searching for a particular scent. Watching her there with her nose in the air and her hair falling in serpentine ringlets down her back. My nerves fizzed. I felt dizzy, aroused, my thoughts short-circuiting with some crazed and pleading notion that she wasn't just a girl. She was something more, something I needed. She turned to me in the instant between strobes. In one blue flash, she was sunning herself under the disco ball. There was a slice of darkness, and in the amber sheen that followed, she was gazing my way. Despite countless inner klaxons bellowing, be cool, be cool, I waved. She furrowed her brow, her lips curling upward in a slow, dawning amusement. She shimmied up to me, clasped the tie I was keeping loosened around my neck, and rubbed the fabric as if gauging its value. When she finally spoke, she addressed the tie. What's a fine piece of silk like you doing in a place like this? Wishing in vain to be a flannel. Her eyes shot mine, hazel and bright. She had a lazy grin and I could make out a spot of lipstick on one slightly crooked tooth. Surprisingly droll for an investment banker, she said. Lawyer, actually. For investment bankers, I imagine, you say potato... I say hash browns. Either way, yum. French. She hopped onto the stool next to mine, 
her aquamarine skirt wafting against my legs, and spun a few full rotations before facing me again. Can I buy you a... I started. But she pressed her palm against my mouth, the smell of grapefruit and soap cutting through the venue's stale beer haze. Let's not make this a transaction, honey. I shrugged, partly in surrender, partly unsure of how to further the conversation. Thankfully, she continued unprompted. Shouldn't you be somewhere ordering $40 cocktails from somebody calling herself a mixologist? She suddenly gripped my wrists, pulling my hands to her breast and giving me a look as if I was an abandoned puppy. Oh my gosh, you're lost, aren't you? Though, does it really matter? Do you like this band? She spoke with a machine gun cadence, and each rapid-fire question left my head spinning. It felt like I was the one twirling on my stool just seconds before. They're pretty good, I managed. Loud, you mean loud. Well, yeah, guess I'm getting old. I made a fist and put on a rickety grandpa voice that I immediately regretted. Get off my dang lawn! I'm serious, you nameless wonder. It's Max. Maximilian? Maxwell? Just Max. My parents were simple folk. She chuckled. Anywho, I'm serious about being serious. Too loud for me. Who can dance to this? Also, did I mention that I like you? Well, the look of you. It's your eyes, I think. My eyes? He looked mournfully bewildered. I have no idea what that means, and it fascinates me. Can't say I have an answer for you. She mined a gag. Who wants answers? I raised my hand. She managed to say, are you serious? With just a glance. So what answers do you want? She eventually asked. I gestured to my wardrobe with a game show flourish. Is this suit right for me? Some quirk in the venue made her laugh echo off the walls. You wield words with the subtlety of meal near, she said. English major, guilty as charged. Clichés too. Aren't I the lucky girl? I found the complete package. But hey, maybe clichés are your thing. I mean, look at me. She ran her hands over her outfit, fluffing out her skirt. Straight out of central casting for the next emo white boy finds sexy redemption flick, right? I mean, I might as well be dolled up like hipster Tinkerbell. I had no idea what she was talking about or if I should be offended, but she didn't give me the time to ponder it out. I believe you were telling me about the existential dilemma woven into your blazer, she said. Please continue. All my lingering confusion was washed away. The eager look in her face dislodged something inside of me and the words came tumbling out. I did the whole law school thing because I didn't really know what else to do. I think I had some vague idea about helping people. Doing the, you know, proverbial good in the world. But then I graduated six figures in student debt and took a job at one of those huge corporate firms. You know the type. Bad guys on TV, $5,000 suits, and even more expensive haircuts. The girl yawned. Point being, point being, our biggest client is a megalith investment bank. They've sucked the city's pension fund dry, destroyed people's lives, and here I am spending 17 hours a day helping them get away with it. I know they have the right to representation, intellectually speaking, but I just don't know if I want to be that guy. Why not? The girl asked. 
Maybe that guy is who you're supposed to be. Ever think of that? I was on a roll, however, and barreled over her questions. My resignation letter is already drafted. It's printed out, sitting in my desk. Only reason I'm here tonight, I need some time to clear my head. Something dumb to occupy the evening while I worked out whether to hand it in. A company man at the crossroads, she cooed. How perfect. No wonder I was sent for you. She winked at me, playfully slapped my knee. I ached at that brief touch, wanting more, but she pulled back. I hate to bear bad news, she said. But I think your search for catharsis has reached a dead end here. Also, it's loud and boring. Let's get out of this place. See if we can't track down the elusive answer as to where just Max Esquire's life should be added. I know a little bar that might be a good place to start. Killer jukebox, guacamole, cocktails made from beets. Need I say more? How could I say no? I nodded and told her I'd love to accompany her. She smiled, took my arm, and led me out of the concert's heartbeat throb. We made our way further downtown through the flickering orange glow of nocturnal New York. Vents in the sidewalk breathed thick steam that lapped at our ankles. Under neon and streetlights, I caught a sidelong glimpse of freckled skin under the neck of her shirt. It seemed to glow in the ruddy murk of the night, a beacon I would have followed anywhere. You're from the city? I asked. She snorted. Of the city, more like. Always been here. Always will be. Not sure I'm following you. This city is alive, Max. You walk its flesh, commute to work in its veins. And us? We're all just tiny bits of its life cycle. What, like blood cells? She slapped my arm. Exactly, you smart cookie, you. Thing is, the city is more fragile than you might think. It's a delicate ecosystem. Needs every last one of us in a symbiotic sense. A vast clockwork of sinners and saints. We all have our parts to play. And what's your part? Me? She grinned. I'm just a lowly servant of the city. An agent of assimilation. Put simply, I show folks where they need to go. Her words glided straight over my head, and so I responded with idle banter. Sounds nice. You guys hiring? She frowned, smacked my question out of the air, and pivoted the conversation. You hate your job that much? I just kind of thought I would spend my life, I don't know, helping people. And you're not? My laugh got tangled in a burp. I mean, so far as you can call these Wall Street goons people. She pulled herself up to my ear and whispered, I'll let you in on a little secret. Only some of them are. People, that is. She dropped to her heels, put a finger to her lips, and bound me to silence. I wasn't sure what to do, so I reached for her. She took a step back, twisting her lip and nervously scanning our surroundings, her head jerking like a squirrel. Listen, she said. He seemed like a nice guy, or at least 
and she crooked her fingers into quotation marks. A nice guy. You can go home if you want. Forget the whole idea of there being some preordained answer. Muddle through. Make your own path. Not like the city owns you, right? Not yet. Some of us aren't so lucky. I laughed, ignoring the plea in her eyes. Now why would I want to do that? I was genuinely confused. Regardless of where we ended up, regardless of how wobbly I felt in her presence, I didn't want the night to end. She held her gaze for a minute and I held mine in return. A hush seemed to fall over the streets, as if the city itself was holding its breath, watching us, waiting for someone to make the first move. In the end, she was the one to break. Her eyes darted to the shadows pulling around us, the indistinct echoes creeping from dark corners. The muscles in her face went rigid and she nodded, an unspoken judgment being made. Fine, she said. Same as all the others. You didn't even ask my name, did you? I didn't, I stammered. I'm sorry, tonight's been... It's all right, really. Now come on, we're still on a mission, right? I nodded, grinned, trying hard to dispel the awkwardness of the last few seconds. The girl grabbed my hand and led me into an alleyway. She pushed me against the wall and kissed my cheek, holding me there long enough for the moist bricks to dampen my back. When she finally pulled away, she spoke with a certain sadness. You're not lost, she said. You're just dizzy. I leaned forward, wanting desperately to again feel her lips close to mine, but she held me back, a surprising amount of strength in her willowy arms. Her restraint only made my hunger worse. Why me? I asked, near delirious. What made you pick me out of that crowd? She shrugged and casually buttoned the top of my shirt. Who says it was me that chose you? Maybe the city saw you wavering and new intervention was needed. Maybe that's why I'm here. Why I'm exactly your type. There's a whole term for girls like me. Did you know that? Manic pixie dream girls, they call us. What the heck does that even mean? Are we like twee little fairies hopped up on Adderall? I really can't say. She shrugged, casting off any follow-up. Doesn't matter anymore, I guess. So where's this bar? I asked, desperate to turn the conversation back into something I could comprehend. The one that'll lead to my answer? I can give you an answer right now. Oh yeah? Just... She bit her lip before continuing. You wanted this. Remember that. She tightened my tie, pulling it up until I could feel its bite against my throat and rested her hand against the knot. These were quiet seconds, her head lowered against my chest, fingers trembling in time to the background buzz of the city. I took the bold step of running my hand down her arm. Her skin was soft but firm, cold like marble. Her voice, when it came was a mumble. In retrospect, I believe she was speaking only to herself. We all have our part to play. All got to follow our scripts. 
there was a hitch in her throat, even when we don't want to. She turned up to face me and ran icy fingertips down my cheek. When she spoke again, her voice sounded forced and rigid, as if she was reciting from a textbook. She sounded empty. For some reason, I found this reassuring. Silly bunny, she said. This is who you are now. This is who the city wants you to be, who you need to be. With one hand, she pressed her fingers into my chest, her nails a sharp pressure that stole my breath. She ran her other hand over my reassembled suit. Only this. She smiled at me one last time as her eyes rolled back into her skull. Somehow I could sense that she was still looking back at me through the heavy black film that replaced her hazel irises. It was beautiful, in the way sharks are beautiful. Her lips parted to reveal an impossible void behind rows of teeth, writhing tendrils of darkness rushing over her tongue, squelching hungrily against each other. And beyond those reaching things, an infinite urban landscape. Its streets were teeming with life, buildings that shivered and breathed, faceless figures bound on lines of slick silver fiber being drawn through endless concrete canyons, the roar of a living city. I had no time to react. She pressed her mouth against mine, and in her kiss I was swallowed whole. There's not much left to say. I woke up the next morning, pressed against a dumpster. My body felt light, emptied, save a ravenous desire to get to work. I stumbled to my office under the bright Saturday sun, and a profound sense of peace coursed through me as I settled behind my desk. Reviewing the glut of my client's incriminating documents, I found myself marvelously untroubled by the task set before me. So they screwed over a bunch of old pensioners. Who gives a shit? I felt pregnant, a newfound clarity of purpose warm and growing in my belly. Sitting at my desk with a mausoleum expanse of the financial district at my back, I was happy. And I'm still happy, all these years later. Why shouldn't I be? I made partner in record time, earned a small fortune defending Wall Street's most notorious sent my kids to all the right schools. My wife is a knockout. My side piece is even hotter. To sum it up in a verb, I've achieved. Isn't that what really matters? If I ever want to actually ponder the question, well, I can do so poolside at my place in the Hamptons. I still keep an eye out for the girl, though, spending most of my evenings searching for her in the stylish cacophony of the Lower East Side. My family doesn't mind my absence. They know my heart. What little of it isn't devoted to my job lies elsewhere. It lies with her. I'm sure she looks completely different now. I'm sure she dons a new skin for each of those she chooses, taking whatever shape will draw them surely into her embrace. Something tells me I will recognize her regardless. I've stopped asking questions. She told me exactly what she is. I was just too young, too stupid to listen. She's an angel of the city, 
forever prowling for lost souls to lead onto the proper path, forever ensuring that we, sinners, saints, and those in between, continue to play our vital roles in keeping the city alive. My mistress tells me it's like I've found the one true faith. Maybe she's right. Maybe that long-ago girl is my religion. If so, this is my prayer. I will walk the flesh of the city until I find her again. And when I finally do, I will drop to my knees and give thanks. In return, all I ask is that she wipe the tears from my cheeks and bless me with the affirmation of her touch. The end. Evan Burkow writes speculative fiction when he's not lawyering. His stories have appeared in numerous venues, including Strange Horizons, Flash Fiction Online, Escape Pod, Cross Genres Magazine, and Cast of Wonders. Evan lives in the New York City suburbs with his wife and daughter, as well as a small menagerie consisting of two enormous gray cats and one adorable rescue dog. You can find him on Twitter at E-V-A-N underscore B-E-R-K-O-W or online at www.evanburkow.com. Laura Nicholas is a New York City-based actor and singer. She won the 2014 Broadway World Denver Best Actress Award for her portrayal of Kim in Miss Saigon and originated the role of Hannah in Stinky Kids the Musical, the 2012 Off-Broadway Alliance Award winner for Best Family Musical. Her regional credits include You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown as Lucy, Cinderella as Cinderella, West Side Story as Anita, Spelling Bee as Marcy Park, and Little Women as Meg, among dozens of others. She has worked and toured all over the U.S. and has recently performed in three concerts in Tochigo and Tokyo, Japan. She is a huge geek for the sci-fi and fantasy genres and casual cosplays for fun. Follow her Instagram at Navy Casual Cosplays. She is very passionate about diversity in art and media, and her ultimate dream is to do a project that can get her at a Comic-Con panel in front of a room full of her peeps. She is also currently pursuing some TV and film as well as commercial print and voice work. You can find her at L-O-R-A-N-I-C-O-L-A-S. That's lornicolas.com. This episode of Kaleidocast Season 2 was brought to you by our Kickstarter supporters, Francis King, Adeodat Ilbudo, and Cesar R. Bustamante Jr. Thank you. How much more of this I can... Can it, King? Five alliterative allusions now. Like, 
Lex Luthor's love for lead-lined linen is a Lilliputian's loathing for Lefuskins. Sloppy. Ow! Another! Diderot the dilettante and D'Alembert the dawdler don't dare dispute the dissertations of Descartes on his dirigible. Better! Drop and give me N plus one fallacies. Ad hominem. Moron. Ad ignoratum. Says who? Ad populum. That's original. I can't. I can't. Ow! Hasty generalization. Look, what's the point of this? How is this going to help us beat the Oversheen? Ah, now you're asking the right questions. The Oversheen may have the cosmic power of the multiverse at his fingertips, but that power has no will of its own. It floats through the shape and contours of Overstreet's miserable little noggin. So what I'm saying... You want to catch an Oversheen, be an Oversheen. I have nothing more to teach you, Liu Kang. Really? No. Not remotely. But we're out of time. Stories are floating through the streets like Cantonese sky lanterns. Look, there goes a satirical noir like it owns the neighborhood. Huh. Appointment at Titlanitsa by Fred Stesny? Never seen one of those south of 59th Street. I'm in my office with the shades down, hiding from another Mexico City summer. An electric fan spins uselessly on top of a file cabinet. I'm reading the news, the city's English-language newspaper. The headline is about the Ruskies test-firing another rocket. Under that is something about President Eisenhower wrestling an iguana. A guy walks into my office wearing a flashy suit. I'm a private detective. I notice these things. Senor Bruce Fenton, he asks. That's me, I say, tossing the paper onto my desk. He takes a second to look around my office. If he's looking for diplomas or bowling trophies, he's not going to find them. I am in need of your services, he says. All right, I say, but I need to know who I'm doing business with. He snaps to attention. I am Commander Hector Esteban Morales of La NASA de Mexico. That's when I noticed that his flashy suit is a spacesuit. I wondered why he wasn't wearing a tie. Thought it was a Mexican thing. I leaned back in my chair. So what's the problem? Someone is trying to kill me. What makes you think that? Hector reaches into his pocket. When I stepped into the shower yesterday morning, I found this. He puts a jar on my desk. A jar is an unusual choice for a murder weapon, I say. No, he says. Look inside the jar. Then I notice the little monster. That's a bark scorpion, highly venomous, I say. Any idea who wants you dead? I suspect my ex-wife, he says, but I have no proof. Why come to me? Why not let the Federales take care of this? I need someone who can handle this quietly. He gestures towards the newspaper on my desk. If this story were to get into the newspapers, then... His voice trails off. I have my doubts about this case. Something smells like two-day-old flounder. I open my desk drawer. Inside is a two-day-old flounder. About my fee, I say. But before I can finish, he throws a wad of bills on my desk. That's a thousand pesos, he says. I flip through it. It's probably enough to have someone come in and remove the rotting flounder. Plus expenses, I say. Plus expenses. 
An hour later, I'm staking out the home of his ex, Carmen Hortensia Lopez de la Garcia Hernandez. She lives on a quiet street in the Coyacan. Nothing appears out of the ordinary. I see a teenage girl walking her dog, an hombre watering his lawn, and two donkeys strolling down the street, obviously on a first date. A little after midnight, she slips out the front door and hails a taxi. I follow. The cab speeds up and makes a few quick turns. I struggle to keep up. When I turn the next corner, she's standing in the middle of the street, one sexy roadblock. I stop and she walks to my window, her high heels clicking on the cobblestones. If you're going to follow me, you'll have to be more subtle than that. What tipped you off? You aren't hard to spot. We don't see many U.S. license plates around here. And you're driving a cement mixer. She eyes me warily. Did my ex-husband hire you? I had to hand it to her. This senorita was sharp. Yeah, I say. He thinks you're trying to kill him. The ego of that man, she scoffs, thinking he's worth the bullets. The sarcasm is dripping from her voice like tinsel on a Christmas tree. You have any idea who would want him dead? All of Mexico loves him. They don't know him like I do. She spits in the street. Wait until she finds out what kind of man he really is. He'll leave her, too. She, I ask. Hector throw you over for another dish? See, si, she says, her eyes burning with anger. I do not care. She can have him. I don't believe that for a minute. She takes me to a nearby hotel. When we get there, she's out of her dress faster than you can peel a banana. We make love. Perdoname, says the desk clerk. Are you going to rent a room or not? I look around the lobby. Everyone's staring at us. Sure, I say. The next morning, I slip out a little before sunrise to meet Hector at La Plaza de la Constitución. It's easy to go unnoticed there. The square is full of tourists taking snapshots, buying cheap souvenirs, and rustling iguanas. We sit in a cafe. The Java here is better than I'm used to. Your ex-wife says she isn't trying to kill you, I say. And you believe her? She's on the up and up. I'm a detective. I know when a dame is trying to feed me a Chinese chalupa. Any idea who else would want you wearing a pine overcoat? He looks at me, offended. I am the second best astronaut in Mexico. A national hero. Who would want me dead? Any rivals? Say the third best astronaut in Mexico? Hector chuckles. There are only two astronauts in Mexico. Any skeletons in your closet? See, si, he says, but I only use them to put on puppet shows for the children. That's when a hot tamale in a white pantsuit glides up to the table and kisses Hector. Darling, she says. I guess that this is Carmen's replacement. Hector gestures to me. Mi pequeño pastelillo, this is Bruce Fenton, a friend. Señor Fenton, this is Consuela Conchita Guzman Ortiz. She smiles like a barracuda. A pleasure, she says, extending her perfectly manicured hand. All mine, I say, taking it. Her hand is cold, like she's been giving a back rub to a snowman. As if on cue, three federales surround the table. One of them has an ugly scar running from his forehead to his chin down his neck, across his chest, over his abdomen, and ending right below his belly button. Senor Fenton, he says, you are under arrest for the murder of Carmen Hortensia Lopez de la Garcia Hernandez. Hector jumps up, shocked. Do you have any evidence, he demands? The federale points to me. We found his mustache next to her body. I laugh, pointing to my upper lip. Look at me, I don't have a mustache. Exactamente, declares the federale.
They take me to the police station and throw me into a windowless room lit by a single bare bulb. I'm handcuffed to a metal ring in the ceiling and left hanging. The federales take a powder and the hombre with a scar enters holding a broomstick. Why did you kill la senora? he asks me. I didn't. This is all a setup. The federale holds up the broomstick. Children love the piñata. They just have to hit it until it breaks. Then, he gives me a nasty grin, they get what they want out of it. I laugh. What's so funny, he asks. Abbott Costello. They crack me up. He hits me with a broomstick. It hurts. He keeps hitting me. If he weren't blindfolded, his swings would probably be more accurate. Finally, he stops to open his presents and have cake. My next stop is a jail cell. I've been in bus station restrooms with more charm. My cell is about six feet by eight. One window, a bench, toilet, and sink. I watch a cucaracha crawl across the wall and wonder why they don't keep cockroaches locked up in a separate, smaller jail. I sit down on the bench to think. My prospects look grim. I can't count on Hector to bail me out. No way he'll want to be mixed up with an accused murderer. I don't trust the Mexican legal system to find me innocent either. My only option is to escape and find the real killer before the federales catch up to me. I look around for anything I can use for my escape. There's a pick and shovel in the corner and an oil painting set. I'm painting a still life of the pick and shovel when I hear the sound of hammering. I look up and see that someone is working a chisel around the window bars. A strong pair of hands pulls the bars away and a man's face appears in the empty space. Hola, he says. I am here to help you. All right, I say, but first I need to know who I'm escaping with. I am Commander Ignacio Lopez de Cordova, the greatest astronaut in Mexico. Hurry, climb out of this window before the guards wake up. As soon as my feet hit the ground outside, he hands me a large sombrero. Put this on and take this guitar. Dressed as a mariachi, you'll be less conspicuous. The jail is in a bad part of town, a coagulation of clip joints, dive bars, and grind houses bathed in a garish neon glow. I keep my head down so I won't be recognized, also so I don't step on any dead birds. A dozen banditos ride down the street shouting, ay, 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 and firing their guns in the air. Three more dead birds fall onto the sidewalk. Why'd you break me out, I ask. I believe that we are all pulling at the same knot, but for different reasons, he says. I need to find out who really killed Carmen Hortensia Lopez de la Garcia Hernandez, I say. I've got a hunch it was Consuela Conchita Guzman Ortiz. He nods, and I need to know why she wants to get rid of you. Easy, I say. Hector hired me to find out who's trying to kill him. Ignacio scowls. She's trying to kill him? Perhaps I'm too late. What do you mean, too late? Hector has something she wants, he says. Something she wants to keep everyone else away from until she can take it herself. He narrows his eyes with concern. Maybe she has it already. What, like a chest full of Spanish gold? Bigger than that, he says. How about the world's biggest ball of yarn? Or a giant clam? One as big as a house? He shakes his head. It's not a thing. Whatever it is, I say, you must want it too. He ignores that, and I sense that this enchilada is coming with a side of double-cross. I decide to play along until I can figure out his game. Ignacio looks at me carefully. Why would an American private eye decide to work in Mexico City? It's a long story, I say. 
one that starts with a leggy blonde walking into my office and ends with a street magician going up in a column of flames. Ignacio shakes his head and starts walking faster. We need to get to Hector before Consuela does. Hector's hacienda isn't hard to find. He really is a national hero. We go to Commander Hector Esteban Morales Park, then follow Commander Hector Esteban Morales Boulevard, past El Museo de Commander Hector Esteban Morales, make a ride at El Biblioteca de Commander Hector Esteban Morales, and there's La Palacio de Commander Hector Esteban Morales. We're getting close when we see Hector riding by on a bicycle, with a space helmet hanging from the handlebars. Hola, Hector, shouts Ignacio. Hector looks at us like he doesn't know who we are. He gets spooked and pedals faster. Something about these haraches don't fit. I throw the guitar at him, scoring a direct hit. He loses his balance and falls. We catch up to him while he's still dazed. This isn't Hector, says Ignacio. It's still dark, but I can see that he's right. This hombre's hair is an obvious dye job, and someone used makeup to darken his skin. I grab the fake Hector by his spacesuit. All right, amigo, let's have some answers. Starting with why you aren't wearing your helmet while riding in the street. Do you think I'd ever tell you, says the imposter? He's got a south-of-the-border accent, but it's only if the border is the Mason-Dixon line. I make a fist. Maybe this will convince you to talk. When I try to punch him, he pulls a jiu-jitsu move that puts me flat on my back. Ignacio steps in and karate chops the guy in the neck. He goes down, unconscious. Thanks, I say, getting up, but now we'll never get any answers out of him. There's no time for that anyway, says Ignacio. He starts taking off his clothes. Hold on there, I say. If that's what you have in mind, I know a hotel where we can be more comfortable. No, he says. I'm going to change into his spacesuit. It only takes a few minutes. Ignacio puts on the helmet. This way, Consuelo will think that I'm the fake Hector. Ignacio rides the bike while I hoof it the rest of the way to Hector's place. When we get there, I hide in the bushes and Ignacio rings the bell. Consuela answers wearing a sheer nightgown. Caramba, she's got a nice pair of maracas. You're ten minutes late, she snaps, stepping outside. The siren wails in the distance, getting closer. That's the ambulance. You need to get going, now. She hands him a piece of paper. I'll catch up with you soon. Then she goes back in and closes the door. I come out of the bushes. Ignacio takes off the helmet. We look at the paper. This is a map to Titlanitsa, he says. An ancient Aztec pyramid. Seems like a strange time to go sightseeing, I say. I'm going there now, says Ignacio. I need you to keep Consuela occupied. He hops on the bicycle and starts pedaling. As soon as he's gone, the ambulance arrives. I follow the medics inside. Maybe Carmen was right about Hector's ego. There's a fountain in the foyer. In the middle of the fountain is a marble statue of Hector in conquistador armor, riding a horse and fighting a winged snake, while Pancho Villa, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and Canton Floss look on. In here, Consuela shouts from somewhere upstairs. She sounds distressed, but I know it's an act. We follow her voice up a grand staircase into the bathroom. I look down, frozen in horror. Even the medics are shocked by what they see. Who doesn't have the decency to flush after a numero dose, I say. Not that bathroom, shouts Consuela from down the hall. In here! We know we're in the right place when we see Hector lying in the bathtub, naked, 
and dead. Consuela sees me. Why aren't you in jail? I could ask you the same question. You murdered Carmen and Hector. She glances at Hector's body. It was an accident. He slipped and hit his head. One of the medics nods. The bathroom is the most dangerous room in the house. I know that, I say. That's why I wear a diaper. I turn to Consuela. But this was no accident. You needed Hector out of the way so that a ringer could take his place. Her face hardens. I don't know what you're talking about. Sure you do, and you're going to explain it all to the Federales. Hey, she yells, pointing behind me. It's Ethel Merman. When I turn to look, Consuela lunges toward me, knocking me sideways. I step on a bar of soap and go down hard on the tile. Ethel Merman helps me up. You really ought to be more careful, she says. The bathroom is the most dangerous room in the house. We take off after Consuela, who's already down the stairs and out the front door. We get outside to see her disappear in a cloud of dust. She took the meat wagon, I say. The meat wagon, says Ethel. That must be detective lingo for the ambulance. No, I say, she took a meat wagon. The ambulance is right over here. Ethel hops in the driver's seat while I ride shotgun. She's headed for a pyramid called Tietla something, I say. Ethel nods. Tietlanitsa. I know a shortcut. When we reach the edge of the city, Ethel makes a hard ride onto a dirt road. She doesn't slow down, and I'm bouncing around like a Mexican jumping bean. The shortcut works. We get there first. We park in the bushes and walk into a clearing. I look up at the pyramid. It's impressive, but I don't see anything happening. What's the big deal about this place, I wonder? Ignacio arrives next. I duck behind some rocks before he sees me. He ditches the bicycle, grabs a helmet, and runs up the pyramid steps. A minute later, lights appear in the sky, getting closer. The meat wagon comes careening around a corner. How she got the donkey to run that fast, I can't tell you. Consuela pulls back on the reins and comes to a screeching stop, sending twenty pounds of top sirloin flying. I sprint across the stone pathway and tackle her. Let go of me, she yells. I have to stop him. Nothing doing, I say. Everything out of your mouth is a lie, starting with that accent. What do you mean, she says. I'm Tijuanese. You don't even look oriental. Not Taiwanese, Tijuanese. I'm from Tijuana, she says. You have to help me. Help a cold-blooded killer? I'm a secret agent with the U.S. government. You're interfering with an important mission vital to our national security. I hear a throbbing hum getting louder. I look up and see a flying saucer descending. I forget about Consuela and stand up just to look at the thing. The bottom is covered with an intricate pattern like the Aztec calendar stone. Around the edges are enough flashing lights to make it look like a flying Times square. They're here, she says, and starts running up the pyramid steps. I follow. The ship lands on the top of the pyramid. The humming stops, but the lights keep going. When we get to the top, Ignacio wheels on us. Mr. Fenton, he shouts, pointing at Consuela. Kill her now! Don't listen to him, says Consuela. He's trying to trick you. I look at Consuela, then at Ignacio. I'm not doing anything until one of you tells me what's going on here. Hundreds of years ago, begins Ignacio, the ancient astronauts visited the Aztec people. They vowed that they would return and take the descendants of Montezuma to the stars. Hector was a direct descendant of Montezuma. He knew the exact place and time of their return. He points at Consuela. That's why she pretended to be his lover, so she could learn the secret, kill Hector, and send an imposter in his place. The ombre on the bicycle, I say. 
Exactamente, says Ignacio. He was an American astronaut. She wanted him aboard this ship so that the United States wouldn't lose the space race to Mexico. That's quite a tale, I say, except for one thing. You're not Mexican. You're really a Russian cosmonaut operating deep undercover as the greatest astronaut in Mexico. How could you tell, he asks. Because when you broke me out of jail, that guitar you handed me was a balalaika. You are very clever, gringo, he says, but that won't save your life. He pulls a gun and takes aim. Adios, amigos. Hey, I yell, pointing behind him. It's Ethel Merman. Ignacio laughs. Do you think I'd fall for an old trick like that? Ethel hits him from behind with a pipe wrench that I forgot to mention she was carrying. He goes down to the deck. Consuela looks at the flying saucer, then me. Quick, she says, put on the spacesuit. You want me to go up in that thing, I say? I can't go, says Ethel. I start rehearsals for Gypsy next week. Okay, I say, but just this once. I get the suit and helmet on just as the front door to the ship opens. A ramp descends, and an alien emerges. He's not little or green. He's big and brown. His outfit is made of gold and brightly colored feathers, like you'd see on a Las Vegas showgirl. Taken together, he looks like an Aztec god. He eyeballs Consuela and Ethel. You have brought sacrifice, he says. That is good. No way, Jose, says Ethel. If you need a virgin, you're thirty years too late. I jerk my thumb towards Consuela. And don't think about cutting her heart out. She doesn't have one. Consuela scowls while the alien gives me the once-over. You are the direct descendant of Montezuma? That's me, I say. Ethel and Consuela nod in agreement. The alien points to my spacesuit. You don't need that primitive garment. Here, wear this. He tosses me a loincloth made of feathers. I turn to Consuela and Ethel. Voy con Dios. Right if you get work, says Ethel. Or if you find the blueprints of the spaceship, says Consuela. I walk up the ramp into the glowing insides of the ship. Then I hesitate. Do I really want to leave Earth behind? Yeah, this world has kicked me around some, but it's my home. It's where I was born, where all of my ancestors are buried, where I can get a decent cup of java. Then I hear the sirens of the federales approaching. Who am I kidding? I know how this is going to go down. Consuela and her U.S. government masters will be the ones unloading this trawler, and I'll be the one who ends up smelling like a two-day-old flounder. I enter the spaceship, then pause again. I check the pocket of my spacesuit. Inside is a two-day-old flounder. Into a paper cup They slither wildly As they slip away Across the... One sunny day in January Art Center College of Design Handed Fred Stesney A BFA in illustration That led to a long career As an advertising copywriter A short one as a radio producer And audio engineer And a new beginning As a writer, artist, and illustrator he, and please pardon him for writing about himself in the third person, lives in Brooklyn, New York, with his wife and son. You can find him online at f-r-e-d-s-t-e-s-n-e-y fredstesny.wordpress.com and he tweets at fredstesny. This episode of Kaleidocast Season 2 was brought to you by our Kickstarter supporters, Joshua Pevner, Rebecca Matt, and the supporters of Fred Stesney.
Thank you for listening to the KaleidoCast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Clyde P. Degamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Your editors and producers are Marcy Arlen, who's also our director, Bradley Robert Parks, Jessica Plumley, who provides additional vocals, Cameron Roberson, managing editor, and Sam Schreiber, our story runner. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our intro was produced by sound engineer Matt Mozzarella. Additional audio engineering was provided by Atticus Ryan Garten. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. See our website for a full list of sounds from each episode. Special thanks go out to Marcus Song, Daniel Stalter, Margot Atwell at Kickstarter, C.S.E. Cooney, Carlos Hernandez, Fran Wilde, and Cat Valente. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes, or go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and to find links to all our contributors.